And if I'm right about that, if I if my basic argument that neoliberalism rests on this reconstitution of market discipline, then it can only be finished when mass social insurgencies around the world begin to break those market disciplines over the working class. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, and welcome to the Spectra panel on neoliberalism. I hope you're all well, uh, despite the imminent apocalypse around us. My name is Titi Bharacharya, and I am on the editorial board of Spectre, and I have the privilege of chairing this amazing panel today. We started Spectre um, not knowing that there was going to be a global pandemic um, right after our launch. Um, but in a certain way, um, we kind of the journal was aimed to perhaps um, rise to the challenge of this pandemic because it was a journal of Marxist theory that united both class analysis with questions of oppression. We are now very proud that despite the pandemic and everything that it entailed, we are now in the process of printing the fourth issue of Spectre. And this issue has, um, you know, similarly brilliant pieces that you've gotten used to if you're a subscriber from our last three issues. We have a wonderful piece by Paula Varela, who um, debates and discusses the various um, uh threads of social reproduction theory between the Marxists and economists. We have a piece by Michael Roberts, who you will hear from today. We have pieces by Justin Akers Shakan on the border crisis, by Brian Bean and Shireen Akram Bosher on uh, Syria, and Ho Fang Hung on China. And I really, really urge you to subscribe to Spectre so that we can continue um, bringing this kind of theoretical um, insights uh, to the global Marxist left. But, and I also encourage you to sign on to our donor program. If you donate uh, to Spectre, uh, you get um, exclusive access to quarterly quarterly discussions with authors and editors, both on the Spectre editorial board and um, in the wider Marxist left. So today's discussion, um, once you've all subscribed to Spectre, I hope you're doing that on your desktops and phones right now. Today's discussion is titled, Is Neoliberal fin Neoliberalism Finished? 
And obviously, it's an aspirational question because we all want it to be finished, inshallah. And we have some amazing speakers discussing this question. So I will introduce each speaker in turn before they speak, and then we will have enough uh, time for questions and comments from you. Our first speaker is Michael Roberts, who will be known to many of you. Michael worked in the City of London as an economist for over 40 years. And as he says, uh, he has, I quote, observed the machinations of global capitalism from within the dragon's den, unquote. At the same time, he was a political activist in the labor movement for decades. Since retiring, he has written several books, The Great Recession, um, a Marxist View in 2009, The Long Depression in 2016, um, Marx 200, A Review of Marxist Economists in 2018. So, and he has a new book out currently that you can see um, on, on the program right now. So without further ado, Michael. Well, thank you very much, Titi, for introducing me. Um, this is a subject which um, I think is very topical at the moment, considering uh, what is happening uh, through COVID, the pandemic slump, and the reaction and the policies being adopted by governments around the world to deal with it or not deal with it, as the case may be. But uh, neoliberalism is a term which has been around for quite some time. I was checking back, and uh, it really started the term neoliberalism about in the early 1980s, when I think uh, the changes that we saw in government policy also began. And it's a term that's exploded, at least in academic circles, to a, a huge level. I mean, there are something like 1,000 articles a year which have the word neoliberalism in their title. And there's even a book of handbook of neoliberalism. So it's a, it's a big academic uh, category which has developed uh, in political economy and in general discussion about uh, the world and the uh, social developments in the world as well. Uh, so it's a subject uh, which is very popular and very well rehearsed, but I am sure that we're very clear always exactly what neoliberalism is. And I think what I want to do, uh, first of all, in the short time I've got, is to discuss from an economics point of view, or from the view of political economy, what I think we mean by neoliberalism, and therefore what what the situation would be now, are we going to see the end of uh, this uh, particular development in capitalist policy and organisation? Um, what worries me about the somewhat amorphous term of neoliberalism, it hides what I think is underneath it, which is really a different stage or a different period in capitalist policy and action. It's, in other words, for me, capitalism. And if there's a there's a danger sometimes when I read some material about neoliberalism that we're all against neoliberalism, but some of those uh, against people aren't actually against capitalism. They see it as a, a bad part of capitalism, and there's an alternative part of capitalism which will be good uh, for people in general, the labor movement, and for uh, economic growth, poverty, and inequality. This particularly comes from the Keynesian wing of uh, macroeconomics, 
who reckon that back in the 1950s and 1960s, with macro management, there was great growth, there was a welfare state, uh, there was an improving conditions for uh, working people, at least in the so-called advanced capitalist countries. But then there was a switch by uh, the powers that be to policies of neoliberalism, which I suppose we sum up as being that the market rules, that harmonious development of the free market should take place, and this will deliver uh, what uh, people need in social need, that government should get out of the way, it should be as small as possible, that the task uh, is to drive for profit, because if you drive for profit, if companies drive for profit, if uh, the agents in economies drive for profit, then that will deliver social needs as well, and that we we don't need to look at things from the point of view of social need, to use Margaret Thatcher's famous phrase, no society, there is no society. And the alternative presented, of course, in the past in Wall Street and other movies was that greed is good. And of course, here in the UK, we still haven't forgotten Margaret Thatcher and her, there is no alternative, Tina, there is no alternative to the market ruling, government out of the way, and what that means is no unions, no regulation of the labour market or of company activity, low taxation, tax havens, and perhaps above all, a huge expansion of what is called globalisation, but is in fact, in effect, capital export in previous countries, exporting more and more capital to exploit the advantages of cheap labour in the what used to be called the third world and we now colloquially call global south. All these are elements of neoliberalism, as I think I would understand it from an economic point of view. The question is, why did this change take place from the period, say, from the uh, 1974 uh, international recession onwards up to the end of the 20th century? And I think there's the change. This is the period we call the neoliberal period. And in that period, I think the biggest change we saw in the 1970s from an economic point of view was the failure of the previous policies of macro management of the economy to keep growth going, keep productivity going, keep investment going. Why? Because the profitability of capital took a dive. From the period of the middle 1960s to the early 1980s, uh, the profitability of capital on average in most of the advanced capitalist countries of the world dropped by a significant amount. It was a huge profitability crisis. And that caused governments and economists and strategists of capital to think we need a different policy, we need a different approach to this. We can't go on with sustaining the level of wages that we've got for workers, uh, their organization and their working conditions, not only in the vast capitalist countries, but also in the rest of the world. And we need to drive forward the accumulation of capital through increased profitability, and these are the measures we have to apply. So neoliberalism wasn't just a change in ideology. That change in ideology came about because the objective conditions for capitalism changed uh, during the period of the late 1960s to the early 1980s, forcing that change. Did it work? From the period of the 1980s up until, you might say, the Great Recession of 2008-9, did it succeed in driving up profitability? Yes, it did. 
there was an improvement in the profitability of capital on average in the most of these countries, but not back to the levels we saw in the post, just after the post-war 1945-50 period when profitability was high and when capitalism could allow lots of concessions to the labor movement. But it did recover to some extent, but only, of course, at the expense of trade union rights, privatizations, uh, sweated labor, uh, exploitation of the working class throughout the world. Um, and so, But it didn't solve, from the point of view of capitalism, the real problems that they needed to deliver better productivity, better investment, and uh, better development of the economy in the interests of capitalism. It was a poor, a poor uh, a result, poor performance in that area. And Alongside it came other prior, uh, uh, difficulties for, for capitalism. There was a sharp rise in inequality. Well, capitalists may not mind about that, but the extremes of inequality have not been seen since really the uh, period of the 1890s after the Great uh, Depression then at the late 18th, 18th century. A sharp rise in inequality, not only of income, but also inequality of wealth. So a, a smaller and smaller number of people in the world Big billionaires uh, controlling the wealth of the world, not only the personal wealth, but much more importantly, the productive wealth of the world and the financial wealth of the world, and also huge divisions uh, in, in income, not only within countries like the US, the UK and the other countries, but also between countries. There has been no improvement in the gap between the poorest countries of the world, which is the majority, and the richest countries of the world since in the in the period of the neoliberal period for the last 40 or 30 years, for, with the exception of one country that has transformed uh, its level of uh, uh, living standards, that, that being China. If you take China out of the equation and all the growth figures, you can see that inequality between countries has hardly altered. So it's not worked from the point of view of society and has only had limited success from the point of view of capital itself. So in that situation, uh, we then came into the Great Recession of 2008-9, which exposed the failures of neoliberalism, the failure to drive uh, capitalist uh, production and investment forward without crises and slumps, with the biggest slump up to then in the history of capitalism uh, since uh, 1825, the Great Recession of 2008-9. Since then, we've now had a period, short period of slow growth, and then we've come up with the pandemic, which has hit uh, capitalism sideways, and of course, working people across the world. And we have to ask ourselves, that, has this forced uh, governments, strategists, and mainstream economists to change their views about the sort of uh, policies that they should adopt and approach that they've adopted? Some people argue this. Many Keynesians say, oh, well, we're all going back to Keynesianism now. There's going to be fiscal spending. Governments are going to spend. They're going to manage the economy. Uh, we're going to allow unions to develop again. There's a lot of talk like this. But when you look at the evidence, the evidence isn't there. I mean, I was looking closely at Biden's fiscal spending and infrastructure uh, program, which has partially gone through Congress in the last few months. If you look at it and you add it up, it would mean perhaps stimulus to the US uh, economy in GDP terms of only 0.5% annually a year. So if the US economy is growing, according to the Congressional Budget Office, of about 1.8% a year, 
after we get through this little rush and we have a moment of recovery, assuming it continues, uh, for the rest of the decade, the CBO is saying growth will be about 1.8% a year, then the Biden stimulus package will possibly take the US economy's growth rate above 2%, which is no higher than it was before the Great Recession or before the COVID slump. So it's not a new deal, Roosevelt style, even at that level, assuming that you believe that that actually worked back in the 1930s. And that what move has there been to macro-manage the, the key problems facing the world at the moment, the COVID pandemic and climate change and global warming? We've just had COP26. There was no global agreement to help the world to solve these problems. There was, it was every country for itself, as far as I could see, with limited uh, agreement on management of that. Uh, we see in the case of COVID, uh, complete vaccine nationalism, control by the pharmaceutical companies over their property rights for these vaccines, and control by the rich countries over where those vaccines go uh, and not to the countries that need it. The latest variant uh, Omicron would not happen if the South Africans have had sufficient vaccinations to, to carry through the process. They've been able to reduce the impact of this latest variant. I can't see any move towards the golden period and the post-war period of Keynesian macro management, the welfare state, the expansion of that. Is there any move to get rid of trade union laws? Is there any move to reverse privatizations? Is there really any move to drive forward on welfare and improve and reduce inequality, get rid of tax havens? I don't see much at all really there. One thing that probably has changed is that the age of globalization appears to be over. The age of expansion of capital export with the breaking down of trade and investment barriers to allow capital flow freely, not labor, of course, labor can't flow free, freely in the world, but capital can flow. But I see a change there because what has changed during the period of the neoliberal period of 1980 to now is the rise of China as a major economic and now technology power, which rivals the advanced capitalist countries and threatens the hegemony that exists for US imperialism in these areas. And so now we're beginning to see a change of policy, uh, first under Trump, but increasingly also under Biden, but also in the European uh, governments to try and isolate, strangle and curb China's uh, development as an economic power in the world. And if that means that at expense of globalization, of tariffs, of uh, technology control, of uh, capital diversion away from China, even at the expense of the free market, if you like, it seems that that's a policy that governments are prepared to adopt. So if we're getting rid of neoliberalism, it's only to replace it with a more intensified rivalry between imperialism and countries like China and others in the global south. Thank you, Tidi. Thank you, Michael, Thank you, for Michael, keeping for so closely, so closely to, the, to the time. Our next speaker is uh, Prabhat Patnaik. Prabhat is, it has been a lifelong Marxist economist. 
He was a professor at the Center for Economic Studies and Planning in the School of Social Sciences at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi from 1974 until his retirement in 2010. Throughout his life, he has been a staunch critic of capitalism and the oppressions it generates. He has thus raised his voice against Hindutva politics in India and Narendra Modi and his policies. On a personal note, Prabhat is a family friend, mentor, but I'm still undecided whether my bias towards him is for those reasons or for the fact that throughout his life, I've seen him be at equal ease in conferences and picket lines. He's the author of numerous books, his most recent ones being A Theory of Imperialism in 2016 from Columbia University Press, Demonetization Decoded, a critique of India's currency experiment in 2017 from Rutledge, and his co-authored volume with Utsha Patnaik, Capital and Imperialism, uh, from the Monthly Review Press, uh, which is the winner of the Baran Sweezy Memorial Award, and what will be in, relevant to our conversation today, because they argue that the accumulation of capital has always required the taking of land, raw materials, and bodies from non-capitalist parts of the world. So, Prabhat, take it away. Thank you, Tethi, comrades. It's a privilege to be a part of this panel. Uh, I believe that the crisis of neoliberalism even precedes the pandemic. And therefore, I would not talk so much about the pandemic crisis as about the crisis of neoliberalism, or uh, I prefer to call it neoliberal capitalism. By neoliberalism, what I really have in mind is unrestrained, relatively unrestrained flows of goods and services and of capital, including especially finance across countries, across country borders. Now, this is a very different situation, and this is done under the aegis of a finance capital that is globalized. And this is a contrast to the kind of finance capital that, let's say, Lenin was talking about. When Lenin was talking about, uh, he was referring to a world in which there were different spheres of influence under the control of different metropolitan finance capitals. But today we live in a world with globalized finance capital, which would not like the world to be divided into spheres of influence, because that actually comes in the way of its free mobility across the world. And therefore, we have a world in which there is much greater flow of finance and capital. One uh, Capital in production, that is. One of the implications of the uh, flow of capital, particularly productive capital, across country borders is that it actually brings the workers in the advanced countries in competition with workers in the underdeveloped countries or, or, or in the third world countries. That's because of the fact that if the wage differences become too much, then there would be a tendency for an even greater shift 
even greater relocation of activities from the advanced capitalist world to the third world. And therefore, in a sense, the wages across the globe, not because of the mobility of labor, but because of the mobility of capital, the wages across the globe tend to get linked to one another. And as a result, they also tend to get linked to the huge labor reserve, the reserve army of labor that exists in the third world. Now, one would think that actually because of relocation of activities from the advanced capitalist world to the third world, there would be an exhaustion of this reserve army of labor because of the very high growth rates, for instance, that countries like India uh, and other third world countries have had in this very recent period. Not not all third world, but, but a few of them. But even in those countries, you really find far from there being uh, an exhaustion of the reserve army of labor, an increase in the relative size of the reserve army of labor. Why is that? That's because of the fact that if we live in a world in which capital or finance is globalized, but on the other hand, the world is characterized by nation states, then each nation state is more or less compelled to pursue such policies as would retain what is called the confidence of the investors, which basically means which would accede to the demands of finance capital. And this essentially, therefore, means a change in the nature of the regime, of the political regimes, and a change in the nature of policies, where while earlier the state provided, to a certain extent, some support to peasant agriculture, some support to petty production sectors in the third world, even some support to workers' rights, now you find that all that progressively gets whittled away. Because of this, you find that there is a crisis that occurs in the petty production sector and in peasant agriculture, which basically means large numbers of peasants migrate out it's a distressed migration from the rural areas to the urban areas to swell the number of job seekers. At the same time, because of the fact that now there is a free flow or relatively free flow of goods and services, the domestic production tends to be now much more susceptible to the introduction of technological progress. If you don't introduce technological progress, then of course other countries' goods, metropolitan goods, would actually come and undercut your production. Therefore, generally the rate of technological progress, which is typically labor productivity augmenting, tends to go up. So, you find that on the one hand, even advanced country wages get linked to the third world reserve army of labor, as indeed the third world's own uh, level of real wages, which is pretty close to a subsistence level anyway. And at the same time, you find that labor productivity increases because of which employment does not increase. And taking into account both the natural growth of the workforce and the distressed and displaced peasantry that flocks to the towns, there is a relative increase in the size of the reserve army of labor. For both these reasons, two things happen. One is that you have the vector 
sector of real wages taking the world as a whole really does not increase. Uh, on the other hand, the vector of labor productivities increases very rapidly, obviously, uh, precisely the reason why uh, employment generation tends to stagnate. So for these reasons, therefore, the difference between labor productivity and real wages, that is the surplus, the share of surplus in world output increases, both for the world as a whole, and in individual countries. This is the phenomenon underlying the enormous increase in income inequality that everybody has noticed, including people like Piketty and others. Though so their explanations for it is are, 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 are things which are not logically tenable. So you find that there is a, an increase in inequality, a rise in the share of the surplus, taking the world as a whole and even individual countries, which tends to produce a tendency towards an overproduction crisis. Economists would call it an ex-ante overproduction crisis. There may be counteracting tendencies, but on the other hand, this tendency is there, a tendency towards an overproduction crisis. At the same time, under neoliberal capitalism, which, which represents the hegemony of globalized finance capital, there is a resistance to fiscal intervention by the state as in the old Keynesian demand management period, or if you like, in the old dirigist period. Uh, there's for a variety of reasons, finance capital is always opposed to state intervention in terms of direct fiscal intervention, it would be all in favor of intervention by providing incentives to finance capital, by providing incentives to uh, the capitalists, but not in terms of the state directly spending. Therefore, the offsetting tendency that one generally had come or many people had come to believe in the wake of the Keynesian revolution that from now on capitalism is not going to see any overproduction crisis because we now know the fiscal trick whereby the state can offset any such tendency to overproduction. That no longer applies. The only offset you have under neoliberal capitalism to this tendency to overproduction is a formation of asset price bubbles. This is exactly what you have had in the 1990s when you had the dot-com bubble and in the earlier part of the century when you had the housing bubble, they enormously inflate asset prices. Therefore, uh, uh, there is a certain amount of expenditure by people that is stimulated. Those whose asset prices go up, they feel rich and therefore there's a certain amount of increase in expenditure that is stimulated and that generates a kind of boom which of course collapses the moment the asset price bubble collapses. Now, this, therefore, is the kind of situation that we were in before the pandemic, when you had, uh, uh, in fact, it was the slowest uh, decadal growth uh, since the Second World War that you actually had, uh, which ended in, 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 in 2020, that, that particular decade. And this is because of the fact that even though after 2008 crisis, there was some recovery in some countries, that recovery was not sustained, and that recovery would also tend to collapse every time that the factors, basically small local bubbles that had been generated, collapsed. 
This is the situation in which we are caught, and, and, and we cannot go beyond this situation unless it is the case that we overthrow the hegemony of globalized finance capital. The problem with that is that globalized finance capital, knowing full well that there is a challenge that is going to come because of the fact that it has now thrown the world into a crisis of overproduction. Uh, it is now trying to resort to other crops, other kinds of supports. And one such support, which is now growing all across the world, is neo-fascism. There is a kind of neoliberal, neo-fascist alliance, which is, which is coming into being, which, which, which of course, is very visible in India uh, in the form of kind of corporate Hindutva alliance, but it is there as a tendency in large parts of the world. Therefore, far from there being an overthrow of, 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 of neoliberalism because of neoliberal capitalism and the hegemony of globalized finance capital on the grounds that it has now run its course and, and is, is pushing the world into a stagnation. Globalized finance capital is fighting back with the support of neo-fascism. Not everywhere, but this is a tendency that is absolutely unmistakable. Now, of course, there's a big difference between 1930s fascism, I mean, as you know, all fascism is, is aided when you have large amounts of unemployment and so on. All fascism, therefore, thrives or, you know, I mean, finance capital tends to use a fascist crop in periods when it is facing a crisis. Now, there is a big difference, however, between the 1930s fascism and the contemporary neo-fascism. In the 1930s, countries like Germany and Japan, they came out of the Great Depression by substantial government spending on military expenditure, which was financed largely by borrowing. Now, today, however, fiscal deficits are opposed by globalized finance capital. I mentioned earlier that finance capital is always opposed to active fiscal intervention by the government. And of course, this fiscal intervention typically would take the form of a larger fiscal deficit, which, however, is opposed by globalized finance capital. In the 1930s, you had, let's say, German fascism basically dealing with German finance capital, while today even fascism, neo-fascism in countries like India or Brazil and so on have to deal with a finance capital that itself is globalized. Therefore, even neo-fascism has to basically carry forward the demands, exceed to the demands of globalized finance capital. Therefore, its ability to revive the economy is something which is extremely limited. Now, true, as Michael was saying, that you know that 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 there are efforts, for instance, in the United States under Biden and so on, to provide some stimulus of the Keynesian kind. But as he said, the Biden stimulus is not large enough, and what is more, even such plans as he had have got scuttled uh, in in the Parliament. And European Union continues, in any case, with no such uh, attempts at introducing a fiscal. Stimulus 
stimulus. What is more, in the third world countries, however, the question of a fiscal stimulus just does not arise because they have so much in the to globalize finance capital. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Oxfam did a study according to which during the period of the pandemic where debt rollovers had to be negotiated, the IMF negotiated and, and reached agreements. I think it's about 94 agreements, something that they uh, uh, negotiated for countries, uh, third world countries, of which 84 had actually fiscal austerity as a condition built into the agreement for rolling over the debt that was falling due in that period. Therefore, as far as the third world is concerned, any attempt at getting out of this stagnation and crisis through um, you know, having a fiscal stimulus and so on just does not arise. As a matter of fact, even during the pandemic, while at least in the advanced capitalist countries, you had a substantial increase in the fiscal deficit, 5% in Germany, 10% or even more in the United States and so on. In India, the total package of rescue come relief was 1% of GDP. Therefore, even in the midst of this extraordinary human crisis, they have been subject ruthlessly to the kind of you know, impositions of globalized finance capital. But on the other hand, it follows, therefore, that the only way that third world countries like India can get out of it uh, is by overthrowing the hegemony or, you know, uh, fighting against the hegemony, overthrowing the hegemony of globalized finance capital. There can be no autonomy of the nation state, even a nation state of workers and peasants, unless you overthrow the hegemony of finance capital. If tomorrow even a communist government or, or a Maoist government comes to power in India, unless they get out of this web of global financial flows, they would be forced to do exactly the same things as, as, as the earlier bourgeois governments have been doing. So it's very important to overthrow that hegemony for which, again, you know, we should not underestimate the, the transitional pains because immediately you would not be able to finance your balance of payments. Immediately there would be sanctions imposed by the advanced countries and there would be all kinds of troubles. But on the other hand, I believe that a revolutionary conjuncture is coming up in which these things would be on the agenda. And of course, if we are willing to fight to overcome the hegemony of globalized finance capital, which is a characteristic of contemporary capitalism, then we can really go forward. Thanks. Thank you, Prabhat. Um, and on that happy note, I am so happy to introduce our last speaker, uh, David McNally, a dear friend and a fellow editor on the Spectre Editorial Board. David specializes in the history and political economy of capitalism. He is the author of several books and scholarly articles. Uh, David teaches um, uh, uh, David teaches at the Department of History at the University of Houston, having taught for several years at York University in Toronto. Uh, his research has addressed issues of race, migration, gender, 
social reproduction in the development of global capitalism. He has won the Paul Sweezy Award for his book, The Global Swamp, and the Deutscher Memorial Award for Monsters of the Market, Zombies, Vampires, and Global Capitalism. David's latest book, Blood and Money, War, Slavery, Finance, and Empire, is an amazing book about the history of money and the staining of money from its get-go with the blood of slavery and other forms of exploitation and oppression. It is now being translated into German. So, David, take it away. Thank you for that incredibly generous introduction, Tithi, and it's always lovely to participate in a discussion with you, Prabhat, Michael, uh, comrades, activists of the Marxist and socialist left internationally. So let me just really focus on a few key themes. When the question of neoliberalism is raised, and particularly the discussion that's been around often over the last couple of years as to whether it's finished, I want to suggest that a much too narrow focus is often put on state economic policy. That is to say, people focus on quantitative easing, zero interest rates, increases in the money supply, direct corporate bailouts, and so on. And while all of these are new features of the moment of increasingly unstable neoliberal capitalism, to suggest that neoliberalism is reducible to a set of economic policy directions from the state is, I think, highly inadequate. Economic policy was always only one dimension of the neoliberal project, which is fundamentally about reconfiguring relations of class and power in global capitalism in such a way as to reimpose market disciplines on the working class. And if we see neoliberalism as that sort of social, political, and economic project, one based on reimposing market disciplines on the working class, then I think it becomes quite clear that we have far from finished with it. By reimposing market disciplines on the working class, what I mean is that in order to restore capitalist profitability, Governments around the world, led by the innovators of neoliberalism in the late 1970s and into the 1980s, had to undertake to weaken and destroy working class organizations, to overturn all developmentalist projects by states in the global south, and to attack working class and oppressed cultures of resistance. This involved reconfiguring the racialized class and gendered relations that constituted a particular moment in the history of capitalism. Buffers to the market, 
whether they were imposed by unions or certain kinds of state policies that had social democratic roots, these had to be massively weakened. And I'll spend a few minutes in my comments highlighting because it's particularly important in the United States, but also I would argue well beyond the US, the ways in which racism had to be deployed as part of the reconstitution of class relationships and class power, so that to use the terminology that Stuart Hall used in policing the crisis, a social crisis could be transformed into a crisis within the working class. And that, I'll argue, has been a key modality of neoliberal reorganization. But by this, what I mean is that social crisis had to be displaced onto paranoia about black criminality and racialized others including Muslims, Mexican migrants, sexual deviants, quote unquote, uh, and the like. And all of this went along with a systematic atomization of working classes as their organizations based on fundamental principles of solidarity were fragmented and weakened. With this goes increasing privatization of everyday life as social supports are withdrawn, greater impositions on households, which of course have deeply gendered patterns in terms of reproducing working class life, and attacks on social provisioning. As all of this was being mobilized, these attempts, as I say, to remove buffers to the market, and to market discipline over the working class and oppressed classes globally, hand in hand with this reconfiguration went the expansion and militarization of police powers, which we see as a, I think, systematic trend throughout the neoliberal period in order to impose racial class domination over public space, because public space also both contracts and becomes commercialized, gentrified, and enclosed to social recreation. Alongside this, and Prabhat talked to, to, to this point beautifully, was the acceleration of dispossession, processes effectively of sustained primitive accumulation that not only massively increased the size of that global propertyless class that we call the proletariat, but also massively expanded the reserve or surplus reserve army of labor that was increasingly disposable from the standpoint of capital. Mass incarceration is then increasingly deployed as a way of warehousing so-called disposable surplus populations from the standpoint of capital. And configured with all of this is the intensified regime of border control, 
This was mentioned by both Michael and Prabhat. The idea that while neoliberalism frees up the movement of capital, it increasingly regulates, controls, and polices the movement of people, bearers of human labor power. And this meant that the policing of the ghetto is extended to the policing of the border. They become two focal points of ongoing militarized social control. Now, in trying to describe all of this, I also want to give a set of shout outs to the work of some people that I think really helps to highlight and illuminate some of these processes. I've mentioned Stuart Hall and his collaborators in policing the crisis, but I also need to really highlight Ruth Wilson Gilmore's Golden Gulag, Christina Heatherton and Jordan Camp, particularly in Policing the Planet, among other works, and a recent essay by Arun Kandani called The Racial Constitution of Neoliberalism in Race and Class. And I emphasize these points because once we think about neoliberalism as a project of imposing market discipline and destroying protections from the market in whatever form that they take, then I think the answer to the question is neoliberalism finished becomes abundantly clear. Now, let me take those points and just offer a few exemplary cases. First, I talked about the weakening and destruction of working class organizations. And here I want to really turn attention to a set of crucial political defeats for working class movements. The defeat of arguably the most militant labor union in Latin America, the Bolivian tin miners in 1985, their absolute destruction by armed force. The defeat of the textile workers in Mumbai beginning in 1982 and continuing for really the course of about two years. The defeat by Margaret Thatcher of the coal miners in Britain in 1984-85. The defeat by the Reagan government of the air traffic controllers in the United States in 1981. And let us never forget that the laboratory for these defeats was Chile as neoliberal economists rushed in in the aftermath of General Pinochet's coup uh, against the popular unity government. So that set of working class defeats set the terrain for the atomization and fragmentation of the working class. In other words, this is not a purely ideological or cultural set of transformations. These are transformations in the social material organization of working classes, which in removing their institutions of solidarity or dramatically weakening them, allow this fragmentation and atomization to take place. The second exemplary moment I want to look at is the increasingly class racial 
policing of the streets. And I'll just use two examples. The way, and these have to do with the ways in which criminality was deployed as a way to demonize all alternatives to the market and to the wage labor market in particular. And I'll just give you two examples. California in 1988, which brought in the Street Terrorism Enforcement and Protection Act, and the province of Ontario in Canada, which in 1999 brought in the so-called Safe Streets Act. The latter of which, like the former, criminalized, quote, aggressive solicitation of persons, i.e. street baking, panhandling. The particular demon in the Ontario case was so-called squeegee kids. These were young people who at traffic lights stepped into the intersection offering to clean your windshield. A whole social panic, a moral panic, was mobilized around these kinds of practices. Why? Because they were small attempts to find means of subsistence outside of market relations, outside of entering into the labor market and into wage labor. So that as Stuart Hall puts it in Policing the Crisis, police activity becomes defined as an attempt to bring the wageless back into wage labor, i.e. to reimpose the disciplines of the wage labor market. And finally, and I think most familiar probably to everyone, is the way in which structural adjustment programs were used to discipline and really to, to end developmentalist state programs, particularly throughout the global south. Now, these were effectively social democratic in nature and inspiration, but the mere fact that they had goals other than privatization, lowering of taxes, freeing up the movement of capital, and so on, made them objectionable. And it involves savage public attacks on education and healthcare, so much so that to the point as many of our viewers know, by the time the global pandemic hit, there were 48 nations in the world that were spending more on debt servicing than they were on healthcare. And so I highlight these three moments, the attack on trade union organization and the destruction of working class solidarities, the criminalization of any kind of activity on the streets that evaded the wage labor market and the use of structural adjustment to destroy developmentalist state projects in the global south as ways of really trying to draw the terrain of what neoliberalism was. On that terrain, states can very readily redraw economic policy should they confront crisis moments as they did in 2008 and 9, and they can do that without lessening these forces of market discipline overall on the global working class and the oppressed. And if I'm right about that, if, I, if my basic argument 
that neoliberalism rests on, this reconstitution of market discipline, then it can only be finished when mass social insurgencies around the world begin to break those market disciplines over the working class. And we see intimations of those kinds of social insurgencies, but they do not yet represent a new wave of sustained mass radicalization. The intimations could be seen in the Black Lives Matter uprising after the police murder of George Floyd, in the recent farmers' protests in India against the Modi government, in the feminist victories and uprisings in Chile and Argentina, but they will need to become a sustained process of radicalization that builds and develops politically around anti-capitalist and socialist aspirations to carry through an actual rupture with the neoliberal form of capitalism that then opens up a new historical moment in which we might even begin to look beyond the bounds of capitalism itself. So I thank you for your time and I'll stop there. Thanks, David. So we have a lot of questions for both all of you. So I'm going to start you off. So if you could spend, um, because all of you have touched on this question. So if you could just spend a few minutes um, either discussing it with each other or drawing on each other's uh, speech. So all three of you have identified, well, first of all, the answer is a resounding no is neoliberalism finished, but all of you have talked about the necessity to implant analysis of neoliberalism firmly into an analysis of capitalism as a whole. So um, we cannot separate the two out and see the end of neoliberalism as a good thing and Keynesian capitalism, uh, sorry, uh, as, as preferable. Now, it seems to me from what all three of you have said that there are three ways right now uh, that capitalism is trying to reorganize, resituate neoliberalism. One is, of course, the inadequate measures taken by Biden administration in the United States. The other is what Prabhat and uh, some of you pointed out towards the sort of um, a radical rightward shift of governments in a particular way. We see that with India. We see that in recent uh, really scary developments in Chile, uh, the Chilean elections. But the third, I think, is what all three of you have touched on, which is movements from below. And one of the most resounding defeats to market discipline recently is uh, uh, the, the, the farmers' protest, the year-long protests in India, which forced someone as monstrous as Narendra Modi to actually climb down um, uh, from, from the uh, privatization and uh, market policies in, in agriculture. So my question is, for the left, this is not a question for sort of in, in general, for the left, how can we, what can we do to break the disillusionment of many of us and hope of many of us in Biden kind of projects 
to actually reorient the left to the movements from below with no illusions in Biden and not overt fears from the the fascist kind of uh, rightward shift, right? So to tread a path between hopes in the state, on in the capitalist state, in ultimate sort of immobility and fear against capitalist violence, but to tread the path that of social movements from below and the disruptive social movements from below. How can we orient the left? So. It's just muting myself by mistake there. Um, it's a big question because usually in discussions of this nature, we analyze the state of capitalism, what the new developments are, what the contradictions are. And quite often the question is then, what are we going to do about it? Um, and uh, perhaps a more sophisticated way of looking at it is what you suggested is, what are the forces which might lead us to uh, see changes in the, the situation, which could lead to, as uh, David was talking about, uh, the possibility of action against uh, the market discipline, the social control, and the exploitation of, uh, of the global south, some of the three features that we've seen uh, in neoliberalism. Let me just say one point first. I think neoliberalism really is the norm for capitalism. Uh, the social democratic alternative of macro management, of Keynesian fiscal spending, of a welfare state, and of trade unions having certain rights but not too much. I don't think that's going to come back as a, just a sort of a process of um, uh, an alternative being offered uh, politically by any of the uh, leaders of the labor movements in the advanced capitalist countries, and certainly not. As Pravat has pointed out, there's no possibility of it at all in, in the global south. Uh, no, neoliberalism is, was the norm uh, and under capitalism for 150 years, in a sense. Uh, we had a brief golden age in the 50s and 60s in the post-war period, at least in the advanced capitalist countries, not in the global south or the third world then. And uh, we've returned to the norm after the 1980s. I see no necessary change in that without major struggle on the part of the labor movements internationally. Where could that come from? Well, I'll just offer a few things. It seems to me that one of the things that's come out of the uh, COVID pandemic is the realization that we that people are not even protected by their governments for their health. We have no attempt on the part of capitalism to research for the social needs of the world in terms of vaccines, to deal with diseases, and infections like malaria and others, not just the, the recent viral ones that we're seeing in the pandemic at the moment. Uh, most health systems in the world are either, uh, as David has put it, atomized, not only the working class, but health systems are atomized, broken up, privatized, no money is being spent on them. Apart, same applies to other services, public services, which you had in the golden age under Keynes, Keynesianism, that's all gone. Uh, so the health systems have been uh, destroyed and unable to provide the protection of basic health uh, for people around the world. So it seems to me one of the key things that comes out of this is a political struggle over re the return to providing at least the basic public services that people needed, health, education, transport, communications, housing, 
I know these are all bread and butter issues, is the phrase we used to say, but they still remain key. And they also link everybody together, whatever their uh, racial position is in society uh, and whatever their gender position is in society. All these things everybody needs universally. And I think there's a certain uh, sign in certainly many areas where these are the issues which could unite and provide the the basis and the, the germs of solidarity uh, to break uh, this uh, neoliberal capitalist uh, hold over uh, humanity, not only in the richer countries, so-called, but also in the rest of the world. Thanks, Michael. Rabat? You're you're muted, Prabhat. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I agree with Michael that actually uh, what we are seeing today, neoliberalism, is a norm. That basically the period of the post Second World War was a period which, in a sense, was exceptional. There was an enormous increase in the social and political weight of the working class, I mean, all over Europe and and, and, and elsewhere. And likewise, also, there was the threat of socialism. Because of all this, capitalism actually did a lot of adjustments. Decolonization was one adjustment. And similarly, uh, uh, you know, the so-called welfare state and, and so on. Uh, but now, in a sense, what you see is a norm under capitalism. And this norm, however, is in many countries, particularly of the South, countries like India, is uh, politically backed up by a form of government that is neo-fascist. Now, I believe that fighting against neo-fascism, which is really neoliberalism, currently in the political sphere requires a very broad unity. Now, this broad unity, however, cannot be a unity around a neoliberal agenda because that's exactly what Narendra Modi is selling. The unity would have to be around an alternative agenda. And I think this alternative agenda would have to be an agenda of relief, an agenda of healthcare, an agenda of education, and so on. It would not be a straightforward socialist agenda, but it would be a sort of welfareist agenda around which you can get a larger mobilization of political forces, which can then command enough kind of, you know, allegiance from the electorate in order to defeat neo-fascism. But of course, there is a fundamental contradiction between such an agenda on the one hand and neoliberalism on the other hand, because neoliberalism simply does not allow you to spend more on health or to spend more on education and so on. To private, it, it forces you to privatization, to, to privatize education, healthcare, and so on. Now, when that contradiction comes to the fore, then obviously you would have to take a decisive break. But this break would have to be in stages. In it's it's in in other words, a, a much broader unity at the moment to defeat neo-fascism and subsequently to pursue that welfareist agenda. And I think that pursuit itself would, would, would take us away from neoliberalism. That's my understanding. Thanks. Thank you, Prabhat. David. Thank you, Tiffy. And I'm going to speak largely to the U.S. situation, which has its uniquenesses, obviously, and start by saying that the, I believe the fundamental challenge in reorienting and rebuilding a left in the United States is 
to fundamentally address and challenge the limits of electoralism and the Democratic Party. So long as those issues are not dealt with in a serious and systematic way on the U.S. left, I think the ability of the Democratic Party to regularly contain and co-opt social protest uh, is going to be an obstacle. I say all of this fully acknowledging that the Bernie Sanders campaigns did have a very useful ideological fermentation, simply in popularizing the idea of socialism. But when we look at the actual history of neoliberalism over the last 40 years or so, what we discover is an incredible capacity to absorb social protest that tries to confine itself within electoral and parliamentary politics. Think about the insurgency that brought Syriza to power, to office in Greece, for instance, and how readily Syriza was tamed. And yet, on the other hand, as you rightly say, Tithi, the farmers' protests in India, and this was a, I don't need to tell any of my co-panelists, a year-long social insurgency actually produced meaningful gains and breaks. So mass mobilization from below, I think, is going to be the key. And if you look at U.S. history, the lessons are clear, it seems to me. Whether we're talking about the great Congress of Industrial Organizations upsurge through the sit-down strikes of the 1930s that brought mass unionism to basic manufacturing industries, whether we're talking about the civil rights and black power movements in the U.S. or the movements against the Vietnam War, it took millions of people in the streets to so shake the status quo that actual social gains could be won. And this is in some ways the dilemma for the US left. According to the New York Times, the Black Lives Matter uprising, which took place after the murder of George Floyd, was the largest social protest movement in US history. The New York Times tracked 26 million people who went into the streets, they said six months ago in over 1,500 cities and towns across the U.S., we now know that number was low. What happened? Well, fundamentally, there was a concerted effort to wind down that movement in the interest of the Democratic Party's electoral campaign. And I think the U.S. left has paid a huge price. There was a growing resonance of the slogan, defund the police, refund communities. That's the kind of slogan that can actually begin to bring anti-racism and working class consciousness together. But instead, that movement was essentially demobilized in favor of the Biden campaign. And I think 
all of us on the left in the U.S. have paid a price. And so I think we're going to have to really win the case, whether we're talking about the labor upsurges of the 1930s or the civil rights and anti-war upheavals, that it's mass mobilization from below that can begin to build a social power that could potentially put anti-capitalist politics back on the agenda in a meaningful way again in the U.S. Thanks, David. So um, since we have all these wonderful Marxist economists, we have to ask a very, very um, important question, which is on everyone's minds. What do you say about modern monetary theory? This is a question from the audience. And is it being accepted as a new policy? So let's reverse the order just for the fun of it. And each one of you, um, either you can take a pass or just um, uh, answer it. We we have a lot of questions. So David, do you want to take a I'm only going to make one or two quick points. Michael has engaged in this debate in a very, very serious way, and I'm in fundamental agreement with what he has written and said on this question. But I do just want to highlight one key thing, that the modern monetary theorist folks use the U.S. and the Federal Reserve Bank as their model, as if somehow it's generalizable, as if banking systems outside the nation state that issues the world's money could possibly behave uh, in this particular way of just randomly ignoring all market disciplines and all market pressures brought to bear by global financial markets and innovate in whatever way they want to reinvent social policy. I wish life could be so easy, uh, but I don't think it holds at all. But I'm, I'll defer to, to Michael, certainly, for you know the more detailed arguments. Cheers, David. Rabat? Well, you know, I... I don't have much to say about it because I believe that modern monetary theory and all that it entails is not going to resolve the crisis of neoliberalism that we have had. And that crisis would require far more state intervention, which cannot be done by a bourgeois state because the bourgeois state is under thraldom to uh, uh, globalized finance capital. So it will have to be an alternative, a state which is dependent on alternative social support that would have to push an agenda that goes far beyond all this modern monetary theory and things of that kind. So that, you know, I would really suggest that, you know, that this is, uh, you know, this is something which is woefully inadequate for either uh, overcoming the current conjuncture or overcoming even the current crisis in the conjuncture. Thanks, Prabhat. Michael, it's all yours. Well, uh, I have got, a, as you know, guys, a, a piece in Spectre about this, so um, uh, viewers can uh, read that in detail for at least my view on modern monetary theory. 
But it is, uh, as I put it, the flavour of, uh, what do you call it, the last few years um, in uh, academic, uh, economic, heterodox economic circles and in the left of the labour movement in the UK. The left of the labour movement, when Jeremy Corbyn was leading the Labour Party, uh, MMT had a lot of supporters and still uh, does. It's seen as perhaps a solution or it's a... a to, to the issue of trying to overcome austerity. That's where it started from, the idea that um, we can't continue with this neoliberal policy of balancing the book, government's books, of not spending uh, on social welfare and social needs and public services just because we have to apparently balance the budget uh, and to hold debt down. And MMT came forward and said, you don't have to do this. Uh, governments can spend what they want, and unless they spend in order to meet these the social needs and break uh, fiscal austerity, it can be financed uh, by the central banks uh, in various countries creating sufficient money to meet the uh, requirements of the central government and other governments to uh, carry out a programme of uh, spending in the interests of public services and above all to drive employment, uh, up, uh, reduce unemployment and drive everything up to full employment. Now, this is really nothing new, though, if you think about it, because that's it's really a sort of an extension of the Keynesian macro-management view that if we uh, government spend, uh, they can run deficits. Uh, in the in the Keynesian times of the 50s and 60s, you do that by borrowing uh, government borrows by issuing bonds, and the uh, financial sector buys those bonds, and so the government gets its funds this way. MMT saying you don't have to even do that. You simply get the central bank to create money. By the way, when I use the word print money, which is a nice, simple solution, I usually get showered upon by MMT people saying we're not printing money. We're just putting, uh, opening up the accounts of, of the government and the central bank's putting it in there. But that's just a technical thing. But it's basically the same idea that, we, that the creation of sufficient amount of money in the hands of government can bring about a transformation of the economy. Uh, Marx uh, criticised this idea from Pierre Proudhon back in the 1840s, who argued something similar, that we simply have to create monetary tokens in order to create the conditions by which uh, we can expand the economy then. He said, but that doesn't answer the fundamental question, is what is that money going to be spent on and who is going to spend it? Because in a government, uh, in an economy we have at the moment, the government's investment levels are about one-fifth, if that, of the capitalist investments levels. So unless we're, as Prabhat says, unless we're going to transform the whole economy so that the state investment is the dominant force in the economy, uh, and then perhaps we can borrow money or we can issue bonds or we can uh, create the funds necessary to do that, but unless we have state investment as the dominant form in the economy so that we can plan for social need, all this government spending will be is it will funnel itself into, as it has done with quantitative easing and other things, into the financial sector of the capitalist uh, economy and then not into the productive sectors. And even if it goes to the capitalist productive sectors, they will only invest if there's profit to be made out of it. It's not breaking the profit motive in a capitalist economy, MMT. All it's doing is finding a way for government to issue more spending rather than borrow through uh, bonds. But it doesn't solve the fundamental contradiction between the fact that capitalist investment and capitalist production and the 
uh, drive for production on the basis of profit dominates in an economy, and it doesn't change that social relation. It doesn't change the fundamental social relation. Therefore, it will fail. It cannot do the task that it claims it can do. And I finish on this, PT. If people concentrate on saying that MMT is going to solve their problems, they're failing, they're being misled about the real task facing us to deal with capitalism at the moment. Can I just say something? Of course. Yeah. You know, uh, suppose, suppose for a moment we assume that the interest rate in the United States is zero. Even so, for finance to come to a country like India, which actually has to meet its balance of payments deficit, you'd have to have a minimum interest rate because, after all, it has you have to entice finance to countries of the third world. Now, therefore, if you follow MMT and your interest rate comes below that, in that case, you would have capital flight. And if you have capital flight, then you would have a balance of payments crisis. Therefore, in order even to pursue MMT, you would have to have cap control on capital flows. And if you're going to have control on capital flows, you have to go against neoliberalism. Yeah. And that's when, yeah, that's when all the countries, advanced countries would put sanctions against you and so on. So, so the point is, it's, it's, it's a kind of formal solution to a problem which actually has very deep social implications and roots. Could, could I add, Titi, that um, in uh, yes. Turkey at the moment, you have a form of MMT. Uh, President Erdogan has decided he will not have a central bank uh, policy which uh, borrows uh, in order to provide the government with money. They simply ask the central bank to produce more Turkish lira so the government can uh, spend. The result of that has been that the Turkish lira has collapsed by 30 or 40 percent in just a couple of months. The devaluation of the currency is dramatic, and this will only mean massive inflation in Turkey uh, uh, and, the, and probably eventually a se severe recession or slump to avoid the balance of payments crisis. Poor independent countries who don't have the dollar as their main currency and have not had a hegemonic position, as David says, in the world, uh, do not are not in the position to implement uh, MMT at all. And all I would say, even in the US, it wouldn't work. Okay. All right. Now, um, I have such a whole list of questions, but I want to ask this because for a lot of our listeners today, have to do holiday shopping for the winter break, for Hanukkah, and for Christmas. So here's a question about the global supply chains. Is globalization in retreat or undergoing restructuring through greater diversification of global supply chains and nearshoring of production? Who wants to go first? Well, I, I would say that globalization has already been in retreat. If you look at the data, uh, if, well, how do we measure globalization? Well, there are perhaps two ways uh, in terms of the data. There is the expansion of world trade and there's the expansion of capital flows internationally. World trade during the period of the neoliberal era from the 1980s up until uh, just before the Great Recession or certainly up to the end of the 20th century, world trade growth was faster 
than world GDP growth. So in other words, there was such an expansion of world trade, reduction of tariffs, quotas, the opening up of borders for the export of goods and services uh, across borders, particularly for the imperialist com companies to, to do so, and vice versa, to receive uh, cheap consumer goods uh, for Americans and those in, in the Northern Hemisphere. That was seen a massive expansion of world trade relative to world GDP. So in that sense, we have globalization. The other big way, certainly from a Marxist point of view, is the massive expansion of capital flows. The huge amounts of, of investment into the so-called uh, emerging markets uh, to take advantage of uh, cheap labor and to apply new technologies there uh, in combination in a form of uneven and combined development to dramatically increase the productivity uh, and production values there and keep costs down and to make huge profits. That's the two features of globalization uh, we saw in the last, uh, at least up to the end of the end of the 20th century. But then that began to slow down. And the reason, in my view, was that the profitability of, of capital internationally began to decline again. And there was a serious problem in trying to sustain that level of investment uh, and particularly international investment. So actually, there was an increasing rivalry between the major powers, the US, Europe, uh, Russia, and of course, China above all. So we see an increased rivalry, which actually led to a tightening of uh, trade protectionism, culminating uh, after the Great Recession in a series of measures to increase tariffs uh, and reduce uh, the ability for trade to continue at the same level. So globalization has been in, in, uh, in decline in a sense, or at least in pause. Uh, over the last uh, period of the, ten, of the 20, 2010s after the Great Recession. So in, in that sense, uh, we'd have to say that globalization is no longer uh, going to be the driving force for capitalism over the next decade either. Okay, we only have very few minutes, so please make uh, these this, a direct question to an uh, answer to the question, but also your uh, final remarks. Prabhat? Well, just a, one point about this globalization. It's, it's globalization is actually imperialist globalization. Yeah. It's the imposition of a certain pattern of production, which is what global value chains are basically reflecting on the world as a whole. And, and, and the whole idea of the third world should be to break out of this globalization. Now, that is something which ideally should be done with large numbers of countries getting together. It should be done internationally. But on the other hand, we don't have an international working class movement. We don't have an international peasant movement. Uh, and, and as a result, it will have to be done with particular nations breaking out of Therefore, there has to be a certain delinking as far as individual, certainly large countries are concerned, and small countries may get together to form local kind of, you know, uh, uh, local united kind, you know, economies. So the thing is that you know the entire idea again in the fight against neoliberalism must be to break out of this globalization that has been imposed on these countries. Colonialism did that. And, and and exactly now, with neoliberalism, you have a kind of similar imposition. David, last Thank words. Thank you, Tiffy. So I'll just really focus on one key element, that global supply chains are driven 
by the interconnectedness of labor processes. And one of the things that we're seeing is that these supply chains can be much more disrupted locally than a lot of people thought. People, unfortunately, fetishize commodity chains without labor processes. It's the classic form of fetishism that Marx talks about, as if commodities are self-producing and self-moving. Once you ground commodity chains in labor processes, and you look at the disruptions that have been caused by the pandemic and various raw material shortages and so on, you begin to realize that working class movements still have an immense power to disrupt the flow of goods and services and the accumulation of surplus value. They can break those chains at key choke points. And that realization is going to be crucial for a left, going back to your much earlier point, Tithy, which suffers from disillusionment. The enormous social power of the international working class has not diminished. Its political organization and capacities have declined, but its potential power is still there. And these supply chain crises show us that. And this is needs to be the element of inspiration we weave into our hard-headed appreciation of how daunting the tasks are before us. These supply lines, these supply chains can be disrupted by labor action. And in that kind of labor action, the international working class could begin to discover its power. Well, on that note, thank you so much. If this was a, in, a, in a room, you would hear the standing ovation for all three of our speakers. These are such important conversations to have between comrades and scholar activists across borders. If you want more of these conversations to happen, please subscribe to Spectre, please sign on to the donor events, and please read the books that these scholars have written in order to arm us in the fights ahead. Thank you very much for tuning in and thank you to the panel for this energizing talk. Thank you, Titi. Thank you, Tiffy, Prabhat, and Michael. Just wonderful Thank to see you. both of you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.